Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. In the scholarly world, Christian science is often thought of as a new religious movement. But what does that mean? Is it simply a chronological characterization, or does it mean something more? It's a subject we've been eager to explore at Seekers and Scholars. So I am delighted to have with me today Dr. Lydia Wilski-Cholo, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Fairfield University, to begin this exploration into new religious movements, also referred to as NRMs. Dr. Wilski-Cholo's expertise is particularly in the area of what may be called, quote, old new religious movements. In an email, she described herself as someone who is, quote, trained as an American religious historian focusing on 19th century religions, specifically the intellectual and theological worlds of New Englanders and those engaged in NRMs, such as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She's also presently engaged in researching and writing a profile on Mary Baker Eddy for the World Religions and Spirituality Project, which is an online database. So, Lydia, we're catching you at a great time. We're delighted to have you with us to tackle this subject of new religious movements, in this case, old new religious movements of what has been called the long 19th century. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, Lydia, I just use the term long 19th century. And in the interest of full disclosure, I got that term from an article that you wrote titled New Religious Movements in the Long 19th Century. It was in Nova Religio, the Journal of Alternative and Emergent Religions, which is published by University of California Press. And when I saw that title, it really stood out to me. So I would love to hear a little bit more about the article and what is meant by that term of the long 19th century. So there's, I would think, two ways of thinking about that term. The first is historians cheat code. (laughs) Um, Because, of course, historical movements don't start and stop because a century has suddenly turned over. And it's an unfortunate thing when you're writing a book, if you're talking about the 19th century, but you know you're going to be moving into the 20th century. So in that sense, it's historical shorthand or historiographical shorthand. But for me and this article, in particular, the long 19th century, particularly in the American context, refers to the fact that there's all of these forces that really begin in the late 18th century, so like the early Republic period, that are rolling through and overlapping and culminating or coming to fruition in what we might call the progressive era, so the early 20th century. So it's really a span of maybe like 150 years where you're seeing not just the effects of the American Revolution, which is significant, and I'll talk about that a bit more in a second, but all of these other intellectual and social forces that themselves are all of a sudden kind of merging at this one moment, and they're not encapsulated by just the 19th century. They move into the 20th century, and we could argue they're still kind of broiling. (laughs) Um, In terms of the long 19th century, though, for me, there are several really important influences and events that come to be definitional 
for the 19th century and then ultimately for new religious movements. First, uh, and I just mentioned this, was the revolutionary period, right? Not just because all of a sudden you've severed ties effectively with your mother country, but also now you have to decide what this new country is going to be. And one of the most influential and still debated, consistently debated uh, moments was this moment known as disestablishment, Mm -hmm. when the church and the state were formally separated. There can be no establishment of religion. And then, of course, there's the other side of it, which is the free exercise clause and Congress shall not um, or the government shall not get involved with uh, the religions of, of others. So that opens the door to all of these other traditions to have a seat at the table that they didn't have before. And what emerges is this religious marketplace where not only is there more, but now they're competing with each other. The people who could have stood up and given a terrible sermon and still been guaranteed to get people in the seats now has these fabulous itinerant evangelical preachers outside in cornfields drawing massive crowds. So suddenly there is a place for these people who maybe didn't have a voice before. And that is hugely significant in many, many ways, not just of which are uh, religious that have to do with social mobility, that have to do with economic upheaval. But from a religious sense, this really kind of just opened the door to a spectacular amount of change and innovation. This is also a period where you're seeing a massive amount of immigration and then migration. You mentioned in my intro that I look at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints more colloquially known as the Mormons. And Joseph Smith and his family were part of what was known as the Yankee Exodus, where they moved Mm -hmm. to New York. So there's this massive amount of people just coming in and expanding. And then if you look at uh, the, the Western frontier, as it's famously called, you then also have all of these indigenous peoples who are having to cope with the reality that their space is being winnowed, and you see a number of resistance movements, religious and otherwise, emerging. So there's this influx of new ideas and new people, many of whom are bringing new religions. The majority are still coming from Europe. You are seeing a greater mixture of ideas. And then, of course, there's this period of scientific discovery and professionalization of the sciences. And then, of course, there's all this social reform going on in the 19th century. There's anti-slavery, there's women's rights, there's temperance. Suddenly people have space to both push back against the status quo, and you very often see this in religious spaces. It is no coincidence that a lot of these social reform movements emerged from churches, from religious denominations, often by women, because they couldn't have a lot of voice in the public sphere, but they certainly had that in the church. Um, And that's a place where they could exercise authority. And the list goes on. I could list countless things that the 19th century produced and brought. It is long (laughs) Um, and ongoing. Yeah, it's such an extraordinary period of change. And it's interesting to think about Mary Baker Eddy in that context, that she's born in 1821 and then dies in, in 1910. So those massive changes that you're referring to all seem to take place within the course of her lifetime. She would have witnessed and and experienced all of that, 
all of that change. And some of those things that you just mentioned came up in our most recent episode when we uh, spoke with the editors of the Mary Baker Eddy Papers, um, which is a digitization and annotation project that we're doing at, at the library with quite a significant body of correspondence that we have related to Mary Baker Eddy. But they were sort of alighting on the fact that in the years that they're studying right now, which is in the mid-1880s, how much of it had to do with westward movement of, uh, of Christian science at that time, and that you're seeing this dynamic expansion that's taking place, and also this kind of heroic, independent, self-reliant, if you will, expansion that's taking place by virtue of individuals just going out into the Dakota territories, into, into places that aren't even yet states, and um, setting up their practices of Christian science, and uh, how much of it was part of that pioneering spirit that was part of the overall history of, of that time. And then also uh, speaking to correspondence between Mary Baker Eddy and women physicians. Mm -hmm. um, and you were speaking about science and the professionalization of science and of women in positions of leadership within religion as a space where maybe they could have more influence that way um, than in other areas. But that there are these women physicians who are either professionals as, as physicians or are just sort of de facto healers and, and caretakers in a community that otherwise would not have a, a medical provision, and that interest that they had in, in Mary Baker Eddy's ideas. Um, mm -hmm. So the ferment that you're talking about is so much there in her story and all those dimensions that you were just talking about. And Eddie is a fantastic example, and I know we're going to talk more about her because she she is so representative of so many of these things that are happening. So in what ways would you say that Mary Baker Eddy related to some of these new strains of religious thought that are emerging? And in what ways is she unique within this landscape? To quote Gillian Gill, by century's end, she had become the most powerful woman in America. And I would not dispute that fact. Mm -hmm. um, so Beginning from that and looking backwards, it's very easy to see her as someone who was solely extraordinary and not necessarily the product of her circumstances. So it is a balance. She herself was a pretty amazing person, a, a talented teacher. Uh, she kind of persevered. I've obviously been in the, the thick of writing this profile on her. So I'm, I'm a big Mary Baker Eddy fan right now, <laughs> oh, having read what she's had to go through. Yeah. Um, and she produced a sacred text that was also a bestseller, which is amazing. And not many people have done that. But at the same time, she is also fed by and feeding into many of the things that I mentioned at the outset, these, these forces that are kind of in play. She is claiming the mantle of Christianity, right, just as many of these other sort of new religious leaders are, while also providing this really radical new way of conceiving it. For her, this was true Christianity in the same way that for Joseph Smith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the true church. And they are presenting themselves in very different ways. Mary Baker Eddy was very wary of the cult of personality, even as she wanted she wanted the credit for this work, but she really retreated. Um, and I think some of that actually has to do with what you were noting before, 
Jonathan, uh, about the expansion into the West, which is, you know, how do you hold a new religion together, not just numerically, but geographically? So her decision to make uh, science and health and the Bible, the pastor, I mean, I think that was a component of that, that, you know, she can't be there. How do I ensure some measure of orthodoxy effectively across all of these new congregations? Uh, It can't be me. I can't project myself. So I think that she was very clued into the fact that the movement needed to outlive her. One of the things I tell my students is that successful new religions are very rare. It is increasingly difficult to sustain a religion, particularly as we become a world that is incredibly diverse and we have lots of choice at our fingertips. Um, But even if we look over the years at the old new religions, they had it hard too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really hard to gather people together and live past their founder. In that sense, she was crucial to this in that she had a great deal of foresight. And she's also part of this uh, movement of claiming to know the Bible while also producing a new sacred text that itself is complementary to it, potentially um, to be used as a lens for it, but not supplanting it. So walking that fascinating fine line of trying to have the Bible remain the authority and to say that it is commonsensical that you, through your your reason, your mind, can understand it. But also, I know these things that you don't, and here they are. And then, of course, uh, in my view, this emerging world of biomedicine, this sudden uh, professionalization of a lot of practices that would have just happened in the home before that has a profound effect on women specifically. Um, some of that is because of the fact that, as, as you mentioned, there were women healers, there were women midwives, and suddenly they've kind of been cast out of having their own professional status. They were the people who were knowledgeable. It is not shocking to me at all that some of Eddie's first successes and greatest acolytes were pregnant women, right? That she Mm -hmm. had really made these strides in the field of obstetrics because of the fact that she was giving a lot of the power back to women. I think that she is carving out a niche in this world where you have a lot of religious healing movements on one side and then you have biomedicine on the other. And she's saying it is medical in my own way, it is religious in my own way, and it is also specifically Christian. And she was able to hold these things together, which once again speaks to to her <laughs> and her personality. So, yeah. 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 No, that's fabulous. I'm, I'm so excited to hear that you're involved with the Mary Baker Eddy Project. What is this project that you're doing on Mary Baker Eddy right now? Uh, it's the World Religions and Spirituality Project. Okay. Uh, you can, it's actually, I think it's, yeah, they, I've written a profile on Francis Willard for them before and was asked to write one on Eddie. And it's made me do this very big, deep dive into her, reading multiple biographies. I had no idea she was so stunning. Also, I'm just looking <laughs> at all these pictures of her. <laughs> yeah. When she was when she was in her 50s, it's kind of extraordinary. But yeah, I'm working I'm working on that and that will be uh, not out anytime soon, but into my fabulous publishers. 
Oh, that's great. Well, this is so fascinating to get this take, and I, I love the excitement in, in your voice about Mary Baker Eddy. So another thought I have on this concept of the formulation of new religious movements, new religions that emerged during this period of the long 19th century, in some cases, they have gone on to be classified as new religious movements, and in other cases, they're not. Um, mm -hmm. So I think in particularly like of Methodism in, in this regard, or Wesleyanism, it precedes Mormonism, it precedes Christian science in time, but it does kind of fall within the early part of the long 19th century, perhaps, at least as a separate denomination in the United States. Why is it? Why are there certain religious uh, strains and movements that emerge that don't fall into this categorization and others do? That is a fabulous question and maybe a whole other podcast, but in some <laughs> ways what you're denoting is at what point does sort of a sectarian strain or parallel tradition, denomination, uh, if we want to use the sort of Protestant parlance, at what point does that become a separate tradition, a new religious movement? And there's no easy taxonomy there because okay. there's also multiple interpretations, right? It, thinking about Christian science specifically, for Mary Baker Eddy, she was not doing any branching at all. This was a biblical tradition. This was Christianity, just the latest iteration of it, right, now that she'd had this new revelation. So in many ways, what that question is about is who gets to decide right. what is a sect, what is a new religious movement, often more pejoratively called a cult, right. um, although that's a much more modern designation. And in the example of Methodism is a fascinating one, because even as you're saying that, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, that's just a denomination of Protestantism. And it now makes me want to go and look back and think more about John Wesley and the reception um, of this. In terms of Wesleyanism itself, it was also emerging in America at a moment when this new kind of new divinity to evangelicalism, the First Great Awakening, was bringing this new mode of being religious there. So it kind of tapped into um, an ethos that was already happening. That was an internal movement. So I don't necessarily have an, an easy answer to saying why something is considered a new religious movement versus why something isn't. But the, the best way I can say it is that more often than not, it is the people outside of the tradition that are doing that defining. Right. Because while I cannot speak for Latter-day Saints, they believe that they are the true church and that they are Christians. And when I teach about Mormons, when I teach about Latter-day Saints, I will always have a handful of students who will come in and say that they are not. And... That is a consistent and perennial debate. So not a neat or tidy answer. So as you say, you teach about new religious movements. I'm just curious, what do you encounter with students around this subject? What draws them to a class on new religious movements? And what kind of questions do they have? How do they engage with this subject? Very reluctantly at first. And I say that not necessarily. That I think a lot of students come to the class thinking, I'm going to get to read 
and learn about all these really interesting, you know, I, I teach UFO religions, I teach Scientology and all of these things kind of encompassed, which they've probably read a headline about. So I think they think it's going to be kind of fun and salacious. And, and of course, there's elements of that. The biggest question that I think that they come in with, knowingly or not, is why would anyone believe this? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, linking this back to the old new religions question, that's really where that pedagogically pays dividends. Right. Because one of my one of my aims as a teacher in general, but then specifically in my courses on new religious movements, is to create thoughtful and discerning consumers of information. Mm-hmm. So how do I look at these people as authentic believers. And one of the ways of doing that is by having them sort of reset their equilibrium and think about their own beliefs, right? If you are someone who comes from an established religious tradition, do we go back to that moment of origin? What was the experience of people there, right? And, you know, you can bring up countless examples very often, I'll talk about early Christianity and the zealots, the years of persecution. You know, the Christianity was a new religious movement by, right. for all intents and purposes from a sociological perspective. It was experiencing the growing pains of a new religion. I mean, it wasn't always accepted. So allowing them to maybe reset their lens and think about how their own traditions themselves were strange at one point to people and not a given can be really helpful. And so throughout the course, one of the biggest questions I want them, if not to completely settle, because everyone has things they think are really strange. So I'm not trying to convince anyone that you shouldn't find something strange, but how do I see these people as real believers rather than looking at them as as dupes? So to sort of change that question. And then the the other question that they often come in with is the one where they will ask, if this religion emerged today, would we believe it? And I think for them, this is a step they take in the direction of trying to understand that people in general are suspicious of things that are new. But then there's also the need to say, well, are we so secular? Are we at a space where we are really just disbelieving everything? And can we point to examples where belief is alive and well? There were people in the 1960s who were predicting the end of religion. There was a book that came out by Harvey Cox called The Secular City, where effectively religion was over. And that has not been the case. There have been new religions that have emerged. There have been old religions that have reinvented themselves. So let's not discount the fact that people are extraordinarily likely to want to believe in things, and they do believe in things. They subscribe to systems of higher meaning still. And so there's lots of questions that they come with. Those are two of the probably the most common that I encounter but I love teaching them about it. Well, it's been great having this time with you, Lydia. It's very energizing to, to speak with you, and I'm so glad that you alighted on this subject for your career and for your students. 
Thank you so much for spending some time with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Seekers and Scholars as we've looked at the subject of new religious movements, particularly those that emerged during a revolutionary and explosive time of change during the 19th century. Our guest was Dr. Lydia Wilski-Cholo, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Fairfield University. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as we explore certain entries in the diaries of Calvin Fry, longtime secretary of Mary Baker Eddy. Certain key questions have emerged over the years about these entries, and we'll find out how the library has been going about addressing those questions. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2021.